This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, and Nick. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Paul Fletcher. Paul Fletcher is a doctor, a researcher, and the Bernard Wolf Professor of Health Neuroscience at Cambridge University. During our conversation, Paul talks about psychosis and the brain, the sheer strangeness of psychotic episodes, why the human mind produces delusions and hallucinations, some triggers and causes of temporary psychosis, how we might more ethically treat homeless people in a psychotic state, and how we have improved in our treatment of psychotic people. I also share my own experience with the terror and confusion of marijuana-induced psychosis. I hope that such stories might help others facing such a destabilizing and debilitating human experience feel less alone and less stigmatized. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Fletcher. Uh, Paul Fletcher, it is really great to meet you, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thanks very much. I feel honored to be on it. Thank you. I would love to start, as I do with a lot of guests, with trying to get some background uh, about you related to what's has brought you to your level of expertise and your interest in the the topic we're going to primarily talk to talk about today, which is psychosis. What what's the background story with you in terms of what got you interested in the subject in the first place? Um, well, I was I was studying medicine uh, in London, uh, London, England. That is, and I wasn't quite sure. At an early stage, what what specialty uh, was was really interesting me, and then I happened to be placed in a very unpromising um, attachment to a psychiatric hospital in the north of London, in a very well, the northeast of London, quite a poor area. And from day one, I I was absolutely fascinated by the subject, by the people. Um, I really liked working with psychiatrists, and I think that that planted the first seed in me that this would be a clinical speciality that I'd I'd like to follow up. And I suppose at the same time, the first, you know, when you're thrown into psychiatry, you get told to just go out onto the ward and chat to people. And I'm I'm naturally quite reticent, and and uh, that's not my ideal way to do things. But I I I uh, I did it, and the first guy sat down with was about my age and I knew nothing about him and we just talked and over the course of the next hour a a story emerged that was really quite horrific that Mm. you know he'd been hearing messages from the television uh that he thought his his neighbors were trying to to um to harm him uh and it was you know, frightening stuff. And he'd ended up quite seriously mutilating himself in response to the beliefs that he'd developed. And as well as being, um, you know, very, very struck by him as a as an individual, um, who was, you know, very bright, very engaging, really nice man to sit down and talk to. 
I was I was just completely flummoxed by this idea that he and I occupied the same context, the same environment, but his reality was just so utterly different from mine. And the messages that he read into television programs and radio and newspapers were just completely different from my experiences. So I, I suppose I was simultaneously drawn towards psychiatry and and drawn towards this this condition where somebody has a different reality, which we, of course, know of as, as, as psychosis. Hmm. As I was doing some research for this conversation in the last couple of days, um, there was a, a pithy quote that I came across that I think you were outlining in a presentation that you gave once, which I think it, it seemed like you half agreed with or partly agreed with, which was something like, uh, neurotics are those who create castles in the sand in their mind. And psychotics are those who live in them. And just in that story you just gave related to the the man that you met many years ago, he is one of these people who, like you said, and I think this is probably why I'm so fascinated by the subject too, who we are obviously occupying the same world, but he is living and experiencing the world in such a drastically different way that it, it's difficult to understand what it might be like to be him. Um, that quote that I just mentioned, you know, you can riff on that as much as you want or, or tweak it to accurately describe how you would assess it or, or improve it. Um, what, what is going on? Right. You know, maybe, maybe to back up and, and to talk about that man specifically, what were the delusions he was having? What were what were the um, the the perception of reality that he had that you found so fascinating and um, just seemed to be so much different than than the world that we happen to occupy? Right. Well, I mean that that's a question that is extraordinarily rich. It introduces, it sends my mind scurrying in different directions at once. I suppose the first. The first thing to acknowledge is the provenance of the quote, and you were kind enough enough not to give the full quote. The full quote, uh, people <laughs> haven't heard it. This is from Jerome Lawrence, I think, the playwright, is that uh, neurotics build castles in the air, psychotics live in them, and psychiatrists charge the rent. <laughs> uh, I mean, this... I, Obviously, the, the the language of that is is very brusque and, and not not very acceptable nowadays um, to call someone a neurotic or a psychotic. We we wouldn't do, but it does it um, it points to a distinction within psychiatry that's become very important, even if it's no longer explicitly used so much. The, the idea is that the difference between neuroticism and psychotic is that the person with a neurosis they do not experience their 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 I mean, it can be every bit as, as unpleasant and frightening, but um, they recognize it as part of themselves, as symptoms of something that they're experiencing. Uh, it's what psychiatrists used to refer to as egosyntonic. It's, it's part of them. Mm. In psychosis, the critical thing is that the person actually can very much externalize it and, bl- and blame it on some other person, some other persecutor. So it's, it's, it's their reality that has changed, their beliefs about the world and the people around them. Uh, 
So it's what that used to be called ego dystonic. It, it, it's not me. It's something out there. Uh, and I suppose that captures it quite nicely. Um, this idea that it's one thing to build castles in the air and to recognize them as figments of your own imagination, no matter how worrying they may be to you. But it's quite another to to um, invest in them so much that you're actually prepared to live in them. They become your world. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I find that quote a, a good introduction to psychosis, even though it's slightly tongue in cheek. Um, so if we if we get back to this, this man, I. I was talking to, I suppose, what was what was central about his experiences are, are two things that we talk about a lot in psychosis. One is hallucinations, which is formally defined as a perception when there's no stimulus out there. So mostly when we perceive stuff in any of our sensory domains, whether you know, visual, auditory, olfactory, uh, tactile, taste, we... Um, we recognize that there's something to cause those sensations and, and we go about the business of trying to make sense of what it is. I mean, that, that's our picture of the world is built up from that. And, we, and, you know, that's a very flawed and faulty process at the best of times. And we, I guess we may return to that. Um, so a, a hallucination is, is a perception when there really isn't something out there. A delusion is the other sort of, limb of psychosis and that refers not so much to perceptions as beliefs uh, it's a belief that seems to be held without good evidence or evidence that other people around you don't experience uh, and it, it's held often very tenaciously so even if people really do everything they can to talk you out of it the, the belief doesn't weaken the belief yeah. remains fixed so this man uh, had hallucinations in the sense that he could hear the television speaking to him even when it was turned off. So he had what we'd call auditory hallucinations. Um, he also had delusions in the sense that he believed without apparently good evidence that his neighbors were trying to harm him in some way. So you, you can break it down like that and think about his perceptions and why they were abnormal and his beliefs and why they were abnormal. But there's something not really captured by that. And I think it can be an essence of, of psychosis. And that is this, this strong sense that stuff is about you, hmm. that, um, that things are, are hyper, if you like, salient. You know, when you're in a, a more rational state of mind, you might see something like, example I use is, you, know, you might see three red cars go past your window one after the other. And that may be nothing more than a simple coincidence to you, at least one would hope. Um, but if that, if that had a sort of salience about it, if, if it somehow seemed important, then you're faced with a puzzle. You know, why three red cards? Why were they all red? Why were the three of them? What's the significance? And so it becomes a quest to try and make sense of that. And one of the ideas about psychosis is that people eventually come to these beliefs because they they represent the best solution to a very mysterious quest in which all of the world has. I mean, the, the way I phrase it in the past is that important things seem different and different things seem important. Mm. And so you know, you're faced with this need to make sense of that. And I think he, he certainly had that as well. Yeah. <clears throat> I've heard you say too, and I, it, the whole subject I think is just so utterly fascinating and 
to start from first principles, you know, I, I've heard you say this in, in prior presentations that you've given as well, that, you know, it, it may be helpful to start at what it, what the brain is really for in the first place, what consciousness is really for in the first place. And I think I have heard you say that it's really for survival, that, you know, the brain and consciousness exists for us as a, a mechanism by which we can attempt to navigate reality and survive within it. And you made, uh, I would love to get your thoughts on this, but it, it seems like these hallucinations and delusions are moments of, um, so, yeah, you, you have mentioned this too, that they're, our experience of reality is seems to be to many people regarded as a controlled hallucination, right? That we, we are also experiencing life through our perceptions and through our brains that um, is a, is a form of experience that is being triggered by brain activity. What, what is the difference? And you may have already alluded to this between our actual experience as human beings for a quote unquote normal person and someone who is experiencing these, you know, psychotic experiences. Is it truly that there's no good reason for the delusions? The hallucinations are bringing about experiences that tr that we have no reason to believe are real. Is that a rough, roughly accurate uh, delineation between the two, or would you add more to that? Uh, I think. I think that's a good starting point. Uh, I, you know, it's always helpful to start with sim simpler assumptions and, and then see how far they can take you. Um, but at some point, I think that that's, that distinction breaks down and, and one needs to add some nuance and, and uh, some shadow and tones to it. So if, if, we, if we focus on the point that you made of delusion, or sorry, hallucination is a controlled, sorry, Get it wrong myself. Perception is a controlled hallucination. I mean that that's become a very um, very pithy, powerful, and popular thing for people to say. Yeah. And I think at its core, there's a really interesting idea, which is sort of drives us back to the initial point you raised about um, you know what what's the brain about? What what's it what's it trying to do? And so if I if I could maybe start with that. Yeah. Um, and then circle back to the, the center point of your question, which is, is, is that really the difference between hallucinations, delusions, and, and the non-psychotic state? Now, if, that's, if you're not happy with that, I'm happy to go in any direction you Please, choose. I would love that. I, I, yeah. Um, so, it, it, I mean, I, I suppose I could be argued with that when I say that I think the brain, like any organ of the body, is in the business of promoting or optimizing our ability to survive and thrive in the world. Um, for now, let's just assume that that's a, well, if it's not correct, it at least correlates with correct. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's aspects of it that, um, I mean, you, you could argue that consciousness is just a beautiful epiphenomenon that has nothing to do with survival and everything to do with um things that have little little value for for continuing but I, I i don't think that's the case so if 
if if the brain is in the business of survival, uh, we ask ourselves what what it means to to retain, to, you know, to to continue to live. And I suppose a nice simple distillation of that is uh, the idea that we need to maintain stability. We need to allow the various uh, parameters in our body to be maintained within certain limits, whether that's our pH, our temperature, the force that's exerted on us. If, if those things go outside certain limits, that's not compatible with survival. So, as it, and if you look at the function of all of the organs, let, let's leave the brain out, but you look at the function of all the other organs, what they're ultimately seem to be about is maintaining these parameters within certain ranges that are compatible with survival hmm. now let's make an assumption that the brain participates in that process um, that it helps us to to you know be sophisticated homeostats or things that maintain stability i think one of the, the brilliant um contributors to that is the ability to make predictions I can't think of any better survival tool than being able to predict roughly what's going to happen next or even what's going to happen a, a year from now. I mean, if you're a farmer, it's a, planting the seed is, is, a, is a prediction. Yeah. Um, so if we take this idea that the brain participates in survival, in maintaining stability, and it does that through invoking prediction, the ability to predict the world, then it follows that what the brain has to do is have within itself a model of the world. Um, and that in itself is the basis for all predictions. And it's a model that has to be updated continually because the world doesn't behave itself. It can change or it can be, you know, it's not entirely deterministic. Uh, an apple tree doesn't always yield apples. Mm. You need a higher order prediction that the apples will be there in the autumn, but not in the you know, high summer or midwinter. So if we're in the business of building a model of the world uh, and we do that by making predictions, then I think that tells us something quite important about um, the nature of brain processes. Because the model is inevitably going to be a construction. We, we cannot simply rely on what the world tells us because everything we get from the world has been horribly filtered by our sensory apparatus. Just at the retina, um, it, the input of the light to the retina actually goes through a filtering process where, where neighboring cells cancel each other's activity out. Mm. They have these lateral connections so that two cells that have the same response to light will actually cancel each other out. So that what gets percolated forward is the differences, the sort of unpredictable signals. Mm. Um, and, and what I'm saying there essentially is that if we then have to reconstruct reality on the basis of these highly filtered signals, there has to be a lot of work that gets done inside the skull. It's not just a case of lying back and receiving the information. And that work that gets done inside the skull is a, is a, a constructive or a fabricating process. Now, some would, I have to acknowledge, some people would argue with this as a, as a perspective, but I think there's a lot of evidence that it's the case. And the, the long and the short of it is that we have a brain that makes predictions and allows those predictions to construct our reality. And I'm talking about normal brains, you know, brains that are functioning within the, the normal limit. Yeah. 
So that suggests that a perceptual process is actually a predictive process. Um, and a great example of this, I, I, I stole this from a guy called David Cox at Harvard. He gives a great example of you know, what's, what happens if you're a tennis player and you're about to receive a serve from Serena Williams. That serve is probably going to arrive in the region of your face in about 300 milliseconds. Now, if you look at the time it takes for the light to travel from the retina to the visual cortex, you're, you're already 70 milliseconds behind. If you then allow the light to travel um, to higher order visual areas, which would be the conscious processing, um, you're probably perceiving the ball to be about nine meters behind where it actually is. So unless you are in real time predicting, or you know, your perceptions are predicting what's going to be there rather than uh, um, interpreting it as it comes in, then un unless you're doing that, you're going to have real trouble with keeping up with the world because mm -hmm. you are essentially, your neural apparatus mean that you're behind the times. Um, so, I, you know, there's a lot of benefits to being a predictive or to taking a predictive approach to perception. But this is where I think it gets very interesting for people like me interested in psychosis, is as soon as you recognize that the perceptual process is a constructive one, then it raises the question of, you know, what happens if you start to construct things that aren't actually there? You predict things that don't happen. Yeah. And we see this in visual illusions a lot. We see um, instances where you, you, you know, there's a famous um, Kanitsa triangle illusion where because of the shapes, you can't help but see a sort of phantom white triangle. Um, I can share this with you afterwards sure. if, if yeah. you're not familiar. Um, and so what that is suggesting is that actually this constructive perceptual process is prone to potential uh, experiences that don't have a basis in reality, hmm. which, of course, is the formal definition of a hallucination. Now, that's led some people to say, well, perception is a hallucinatory process. Yeah. And while I have some sympathy with that idea, I think we, all, we need to be very clear that it, what it's not saying is that all reality is not real. It's merely saying that we, we add something to the sensations that come from reality. And so our perceptual experience is to some extent um, a version of that reality rather than some, you know, absolute, uh, absolutely accurate facsimile of it. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I'd agree that perception has a hallucinatory component to it. But I think we need to be careful about taking that too far. But what it does do is it suggests a mechanism by which the balance could be adjusted so that a person in extremis may start to create a reality all of their own that really begins to bear no relationship to the evidence of their senses. Yeah. yeah so that's brought me around um, full circle to try and answer your question, which is, I do think we can distinguish the non-hallucinatory perception from the hallucinatory one by pointing to the objective causes of that sensation. Yeah. But I think um, when you look at it more closely, it becomes a much, much grayer area. Yeah. You know, the, the, 
there's a human component to this, right? I mean, like so many experiences in life, I think it can be very difficult to truly empathize with what it is probably like for someone who is experiencing these kind of hallucinations and delusions. And, you know, I want to eventually during this conversation, give some, some background as to, you know, just personally experience, personal experiences yeah. that I've had and, and what is interesting, partly interesting um, for me about it. It, it. it may be a decent time to just sort of explain that, you know, I, I, when I was in college, this is something we've written back back and forth to each other a little bit. But when I was in college in my early twenties, um, you know, I was a very studious, very serious uh, kind of heady guy, and I had a bunch of friends. I was in a fraternity. We would, you know, drink, and I started smoking weed pretty consistently in my probably sophomore or junior year, and that the frequency of that began to uh, increase over time. And uh, I think most people are aware of the fact that many people who smoke weed, you know, periodically have uh, paranoid mo moments during those experiences when they're, uh, when they're high. Um, my, I certainly experienced that, but there, there seemed to be a tipping point my late junior, early senior year where, my purchase on reality truly began to crater in a way that was destabilizing. And I never needed to seek, you know, hospitalization, but I did seek psychiatric help. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't have a framework as to what was happening to me. I mean, I, th I think because I was under the illusion that weed was a, a fully benign substance. I didn't make the obvious link that it's very possible that it, really it's this exposure that's causing um, primarily delusions. I didn't, I didn't have visual hallucinations, but the delusions I was experiencing were utterly horrifying. I mean, it, it, it basically was beginning to place me in kind of a matrix-esque uh, frame of reference where the conclusions I was reaching were as true and as obvious a conclusion as you would reach in calculating two plus two equaling four. It, it was as though, you know, I, I had always had a bit of a philosophically driven mind. I was always interested in trying to find out capital T truths. And it was like in a you know, burst of uh, firing from the brain, very quickly, all of these truths were hitting me, namely that you know, we live in a fully deterministic world that, and again, you, you alluded to this earlier about the solipsism of, uh, some of the delusions that people hold where it is all about you. You know, it, the whole world has been constructed, um, related to you and your mind. The same thing happened to me where I, I was convinced that the, the only thing that was real was my own experience nothing, everything else was essentially a hallucination or n there weren't actually other people living real lives. Um, and that I had been living a life, a deterministic life in perpetuity for all of history, that I had reached these conclusions in prior lives as well, uh, had contemplated suicide, but that was a, uh, a, 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 you know, a fool's errand in and of itself, because the 
the system would reboot again and again and again. And I was sort of stuck in this perpetual hell. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a lot to take on. And it, it, uh, it it's difficult now to convey how accurate these delusional beliefs were for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think especially at that time, you know, my understanding is a lot of psychosis tends to hit people when they're young and they're in their early twenties, right around the time when, when I was experiencing this and I didn't have really many people I could go to, to speak honestly. I I didn't quite understand what was happening. I was afraid Mm -hmm. just of being regarded as crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, I did thankfully have a very close relationship with my mom and you know, I eventually told her, I think I'm schizophrenic that I, I, this seems to be what's going on with me. Um, and it wasn't until many years later or years later, I think I learned this in my twenties that, um, I had heard this family story that, uh, my great uncle, my grandfather's brother in the, I think 1930s had what was known in our family as a nervous breakdown. And he, mm-hmm. he actually ran the Riley fruit farm. Uh, the, uh, we had a, a family fruit farm in rural Pennsylvania that had been in the family since the first Riley immigrant in the 19th century. And he was one of three brothers and he, uh, you know, I was told had a nervous breakdown and my grandfather who was in medical school in Iowa was asked to drop out of school and come back to Pennsylvania to take over the family fruit farm, uh, which he did. And as just sort of a quick aside, a crazy component to that story is prior to my grandfather going to Iowa, he had broken up with his high school girlfriend to start this new life because he came home and took over the family fruit farm. He got back together with his high school girlfriend who ends up being my grandmother. So without this event happening in the first place, I wouldn't be here. But the, the, what I later learned was that that nervous breakdown was not really a nervous breakdown. He had been institutionalized with psychosis. Mm. He, ha- he, I think, was either schizophrenic or was experiencing some sort of what seemed like a stress-induced psychotic experience. And the more I went you know, through my life and tried to make sense of what had happened to me, it seemed like, uh, you know marijuana exposure in a very in a small percentage of the human life, human population can bring about latent schizophrenia in people um this is a long way of me kind of just explaining i don't i've been interested in the subject generally but it it, mm-hmm. it is personal to me because yeah. of how um you know when i think back on on my life you know anytime i am having a rough period i always compare that rough period whether you know whether it's a breakup or a difficult professional experience to that psychological experience in my early 20s and there is nothing that comes close to that um so you know i feel very lucky that this was not a permanent break you know i and it's even now difficult for me to remember what it was really like and in a way i'm i'm glad about that but um i i want to just give some background as well from my personal perspective of of what why this is also of interest to me um you know we can go in many directions after telling you that story but one that i might just 
you know, somewhat selfishly be interested in getting your take on is the, you know, the frequency of, you know, drug induced states of psychosis. You know, the, the story I just told you about myself is one that I have found to be true with other friends of mine who were kind of hiding stories like that of having truly horrifying experiences that were triggered by marijuana or some other substances, but often it is weed. Um, so, you know, I, I guess two things there, one, one would be, is that a story that you have had some experience with in your career? And, and another would be just giving some detail as to, uh, what tends to trigger psychotic experiences in people, um, generally in life. You know, I, I think it's true that, that that tends to happen in the early people's early twenties, roughly speaking, but, um, yeah, you, you can, you can take that, uh, take that story however you'd like, but I, I just wanted to give you some, some context personally as yeah. to what the interest there is partly for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a breathtaking story, really. It's, it's, a, you know, as, as you say, it's extraordinarily common when, when uh, you actually ask around and people are prepared to talk about it, uh, yeah. that people have had these um, transient psychotic experiences that thankfully never recur, but they can sometimes not often be traced to drug use. Yeah. Now, one, one theory that's gone around is that, um, you know, with, with the increased um, sort of sophistication of, uh, of growing cannabis indoors there's tended to be a, a change in the ratio of, of the thc to cbd so that the, the more sort of a, aggressive uh more aggressive chemical in it the thc is is much higher and a, some people have suggested that that may be at the root of the increasing numbers of uh cannabis related psychosis i, I don't know and we don't really know the mechanism but it's it's a common tale and, and you know it's it's a terrifying thing to undergo at the time. It's really not. It's not. Uh, it is. You know. It's a, it's a shaking of your reality to the very foundations. Yeah. All of the things that you've invested in and and felt to be reliable get utterly shattered. Um, and also, I think you know. It, it's great that you're willing to talk about it. And I think time and time again, I've been very struck by the fact that the very essence of psychosis is that it, it seems to separate you from yes. the people around you. You, you. you develop a model of the world that is not, has less and less in common with theirs. And I think one of our, you know, our common ground lies in, in the models we have of, of the world and how things work and we agree on them and that draws us together and so forth. And we use other people's evidence and they use ours. But the essence of psychosis is that it puts up a big barrier and the consequence can be isolation, stigma. It can produce, um, you know, real anger in other people yeah. because they, they simply cannot fathom the idea that your reality has changed so much. So it is a really stigmatizing condition. I think when people are prepared to talk about it um, in a, in a, sort of open way it does a lot it does a huge amount for people who have experienced it or are experiencing it um i can't remember where we were going with this but you know i think what what you've described is 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 you know really um vivid 
Uh, and I, yeah, I suppose that your your question was, you know, is is it a common thing? And and uh, I I think that's definitely the case. I mean, there was there was a time when uh, if somebody developed psychosis in their uh, late teens, early twenties, then there would be a huge amount of um, sort of despair. You know, this was yeah. a feeling was that this was them for life. I think as people have scrutinized the area much more closely, it's become clear that a lot of people go through transient psychotic experiences or have isolated symptoms like hallucinations, and that these might just be part and parcel of of uh, life. And there are many different causes. So, you know, drugs are one, stress, major stress, sleep deprivation. Uh, there may be something underlying and more fundamental, such as we would see in schizophrenia. Um, people can get hallucinations because of sensory deterioration in their older life. So, I mean, my, my own father is currently going through a very unpleasant psychotic experience through Parkinson's disease, where he, he really has vivid hallucinations and is terrified of people outside the house. And it's, um, you know, he's he's never, as far as I'm aware, he's never had this uh in his younger life hmm. so it can it can appear for a number of mechanistic reasons i suppose and we're just trying to get to grips with the idea that psychosis is high level description of a series of experiences but just like fever is a high level description of you know a symptom there are multiple different routes to, to being in that state yeah yeah it, let's say there is somebody who's listening to this or watching this conversation who is young and we can focus on on them specifically. And let's say, like all of us, they are largely ignorant to a lot of their preconditions and their family history. Uh, they're worried. They're they just they want to live a you know they want to have the best chances possible to live a flourishing, healthy psychological life. Mm-hmm. What are the real risks? And I think you already spoke to this. I think a little bit, but what what would you say to that person to? watch out for to you know potentially avoid uh, what are what are ideas or lifestyles that people can you know adopt um or, or just you know, being cautious with certain aspects of their life that would um, make them far less likely to have a, a, you know a, a truly traumatizing psychotic experience in their life it's a difficult question because you know, if if you are going to develop a long-term serious mental illness, um, then all of the sort of you know good life hygiene, yeah, eating, sleeping, exercising, that's not going to prevent it. You know, mm. you don't you don't develop a serious mental illness because you fail to do something or you've yeah. not quite lived up to the high levels of virtue that we should all attain uh, yeah. nowadays. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. You know, having said that, um, you know, transient mental illness, rather like other forms of illness, will be to some extent mitigated if you do look after yourself, if you avoid too much alcohol or drugs, um, if you do eat healthily, make sure you, you're sleeping regularly. Mm. Uh, stress is, is, can be very toxic. I mean, often it's the stress 
the sort of stress that comes from things like bullying and trauma in childhood, which is very little the individual can do about, uh, that, that ultimately leads to longer term psychological problems. So, you know, it would be, it would be facile to say avoid that because, of course, some of it is unavoidable. But I think if you are realizing that you're in a situation where you're working too hard, placing too much pressure or stress on yourself or, or experiencing too much stress or pressure from someone else, then that can turn into a toxic situation and, and should be something that you try and confront. Hmm. I also think that one of the big protectors is the confidence, somebody, a confidant, somebody who you could yeah. actually speak to and test your reality against. Um, you know, I think there's a huge amount to be said for somebody, somebody non-judgmental who you'll trust and who is willing to listen. Um, because that actually can do an awful lot to straighten out one's own patterns of thought. Um, so, the, you know, the, the simple stuff works to an extent, the stuff that you would expect to work, lowering stress, increasing healthy lifestyle, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I, I would worry about the sort of wellness advice that somehow claims that if you tick all these boxes then um you know you're never going to get any problems and and also what what you know the corollary of that is that if you do get these problems with serious mental illness somehow you you fail to live up to these these um standards which i think is often rubbish yeah i think it's such an important i had never heard that phrase until this conversation a transient psychotic break or a, a, a transient psychosis and I think it just seems extremely important to make that delineation between between the two. And I'm wondering, as we're having this conversation, if this is a an area of life like so many you know, prior areas of life that are not well known, are stigmatized, and people just don't talk about it very much. That it's kind of you know hiding in plain sight for a lot of people who have had these experiences. I would love to get your take on how common you think you know separate from the serious mental illnesses like you said that are not there's really not much you may be able to do about that but the transient psychotic breaks how common is that in our population and um yeah i think you've already alluded to what might cause that but what what else if if you can think of anything might people be able to do to help to mitigate the risks of of that um I mean, that's a that's a very good question. I I don't think we really know how common just brief psychotic or psychotic-like episodes are. My feeling is that they we, we know that you know isolated psychotic-like symptoms such as hallucinations can be remarkably common. Some have estimated them as you know twenty to thirty percent of people will experience hallucinations at some point, and I would perhaps predict it might even be more than that yeah um to actually you know to have a hallucination and to recognize that it's abnormal and that it's something that you've you don't believe i think is only it's in that sort of gray area i don't think you would call it psychotic because you haven't really separated from reality in that formal sense to, to actually to actually lose contact with reality i think would be rarer um we know that 
serious mental illness like schizophrenia has a lifetime prevalence of 1%. So it's still, well, you know, maybe 0.8%. Um, so it's still, you know, it's not vanishingly rare. It's sufficiently common to afflict most families indirectly at least. Yeah. Um, but the transient psychotic episodes, I mean, maybe a, a few percent, I, I'm guessing really, to be honest. But, you know, getting to this question of what, what you can do to avoid that. I just think because there are so many potential causes, yeah. it's actually, it's hard to prescribe what, you know, live a stress-free life, n- never introduce intoxicating substances into your body, or if you do, do it, um, you know, sufficiently rarely. Um, I just, I just think that's almost impossible advice to take with respect to stress because people will, particularly going through adolescence, where you know stress is the name of the game. You're, you're, you're readjusting your reality anyway to being an individual agent with much more power and autonomy than you've ever had before. Um, you're also adjusting to all sorts of different physical changes, so your experience of your body is is profoundly changing. All of those things are. And, and on top of that, of course, your peer group becomes so much more important than they were in their opinions, their their values, and so forth. So there's an awful lot of stress that just, you know, comes as part of the package. And I don't think it's any accident that we then see in in adolescents whose brains are rapidly changing as well that these transient psychoses might emerge. Based, hmm. uh, I suspect that. There's, there's not a huge amount one can do to prevent that. Yeah. You know, I think baked into the word or into the phrase transient psychosis is, you know, a limitation on the duration of the experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think just personally for me, when I was going through the experience that I, I was alluding to earlier, my worry was that it would become a permanent state that I, I had sort of, I may have lost what I had had and that that, you know, a a prior uh, experience of life that I had grown accustomed to may, may no longer be available to me, you know, in your clinical expertise, does it seem like, you know, these, these transient, whether it's drug induced or stress induced months or years of psychosis that they will eventually subside or are there circumstances in which, you know, once you make a break like that, you you've kind of entered a different realm, and you you may not be coming back from it. No, I don't think that follows. I mean, I think yeah. if if we take something like um, a delirious state as the absolute, um, the most transient and yet also the most vivid and profound of psychotic-like states, where somebody maybe post-operatively or in the midst of a fever is seeing and hearing things. They're believing that the nurses are trying to kill them or kidnap them or something. You're really, really um, absolutely convinced, inhabiting a completely different world. You know, that can pass within 24 hours. There's there's nothing inherent in the experience that tells you it has to last or that there's some untold psychic damage has been done by any means. You know, we might just see it as a temporary imbalance of processing that throws reality out of kilter and that that then returns to to normal i think um 
I, you know, w- what you said about one of the things that worried you when you were experiencing it was that you, d- you don't know at the time that this is going to end. Yeah, as far as yeah. you're concerned, this is your new reality. And we, one thing we know about reality is it lasts forever. And of course, it, it's very foreign to us, the notion that this reality is not tomorrow's or the next day's. Um, and I think that's what one of the things that's so terrifying and very hard to get across. It's not like you're, you know, you're not sitting down to watch a bizarre film. You're 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 actually living it. Mm. Um, and I, and I think people often fail to comprehend that when you when you try and tell people about it. That there's always this sense that the person is somehow deep down they know what's real. Uh, and if only they would just, you know, snap out of it, then everything would be okay. And I, and that's not how our perception of reality works, is it? Yeah. But you know, I I think it can be incredibly helpful to talk to someone in the midst of these horrible, terrifying, mystifying experiences, and to be able to say, well, actually, you know, this 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 may well not last. This probably won't last. Uh, you won't be so frightened uh, for all time. Yeah, it, it seems to me that you know the your world of uh, study and work. You know, I, I'm imagining if something like this would have happened. I mean, God, I was thinking about this with my great uncle just you know 50 or 60 years ago. The difference in the perspective of someone like him then versus now, and almost certainly how much more both well informed more knowledgeable and more compassionate we are to people who are experiencing probably the most terrifying moments of their life. And that in my mind, one of the great successes of human civilization over the past, you know, three to 400 years is an increasing kind of, you know, two front battle of an increase in compassion and an increase in knowledge. And an ability to use both of those tools to, you know, try to mitigate suffering as much as you can, while also not attributing experiences like this to superstition and moral failings Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, religious heresy that, Mm -hmm. you know, that that is, I I think in my mind, it's why I've always considered myself a humanist. You know, it's it's a it's a human first uh, perspective on trying as best we can to understand what's going on and to try to help people who are experiencing these things. And I would just be curious to get your thoughts on that. If that is something you have thought about in terms of where we are in 2022, you know, it's still horrifying having these experiences for people, but there's probably never been a better time for people who are having these experiences to have at least a fighting shot at improving, uh, having doctors who have some semblance of understanding of what might be going on with them and not asking them to read the Bible or repent for a sin, or we've just decreased our ignorance. I think it seems to me in how we've approached these subjects. Well, I mean, I, I think you put that beautifully and I, I, I share that aspiration that that's really what we should be aiming for. We, you know, we can accept our ignorance in terms of what the precise mechanisms are and how we might enter into those and adjust them so that the person no longer has this problem. But that's likely to be a long, hard battle. Yeah. Um, 
But what we can't accept is when there's no attempt to understand and empathize um, on the part of, particularly on the part of the clinician, although I think more broadly it's on the part of members of their society that um, we, we should be able to expect it. And I, th I think you know, what I've always hoped, I'm under no illusions about my work. You see, I, I'd, I'd love to say that by the time I retire, which is um, still some way off yet, but you know, not not as far away as it used to be. <laughs> um, it, that by the time I retire, that I will have discovered something that will actually you know, cure something. I mean, I, I I have to be realistic, and and I don't think I will achieve that. Um, I'm I'm sure I won't. But what I have striven to do, and I'm keen to do, is to is to acknowledge that when you're talking to somebody who's separate from reality, who has a psychosis, um, that it's not incomprehensible, that, that there's, you know, it's not some profound failing on their part where they just simply don't have the right, you know, moral outlook on the world. And so they're just fractured into all these silly ideas. I, I, th I think there's often something really comprehensible at the center of it that we should be striving to get at. And if if all that that does is just make them feel a little less sort of bewildered and a little less sort of on their own in it, I think that's still a valuable thing to to aspire to. I mean, I I, I suppose um, I don't I don't want to go too far off the track that you want. Please, but, no, please. Um, I mean, this notion of so when, when I started uh, research, I I mean, I actually. I'd never had any intention of going into research. I'd always wanted to be a full-time clinician. And until I was about 30, that was that was the case. And I, I just, I enjoyed my work, enjoyed working with the patients, but I got very, very frustrated that I was writing prescriptions for drugs that I knew were very unpleasant to take, that I was, um, you know, spending a lot of my time with people who's, who's major problems were social you know they didn't have a flat or a house or they they were in a situation where they weren't sleeping because their neighbors were keeping them awake all night and i i sort of felt you know at the time i was naive enough to think that this this wasn't where my skills should lie you know i, I should be doing something really important um or should be curing people and and so i ended up diverting into research and, and very much enjoying it um and, and finding it intellectually tremendously fulfilling. But it was also driven by this feeling of, right, now we're really getting to the problem here. So we just have to collect enough data and we'll find out. And then, you know, that's it. File it under S for solved. And as time got time has gone on, I've sort of adjusted my expectations for what, what I can do. And I think one of the things that I can help to contribute to is just lowering the amount of stigma around psychosis. And I was very fortunate a few years ago that I, I, I got involved with a project that had nothing to do with neuroscience, uh, but everything to do with communication. And that was creating a video game that represented psychosis. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've come across the, yeah. Yeah. the game theory. Hellblade. Yeah. So they contacted me and said, we're making a game which the central character suffers from hallucinations. I think that was how they put it. And we, we'd really like to get it right. 
And so I spent three years working with these incredibly talented artists and programmers and game developers. And it was just huge amount of sort of intellectual satisfaction. But what was produced at the end didn't resemble any, any of my scientific outputs at all yeah. in the sense that it was it had completely different aims. But it was still underpinned by some of the ideas I've discussed with you. Um, and what what really astonished me was that when the game was released, suddenly people were talking about Senua's experience in a really sort of disarmingly respectful way. You know, they recognized her dignity and her heroism uh, as, as somebody who was facing these things. Mm. And that chimed much more with my experience with patients. You know, you're, you're talking about people who they might be the person on the bus that you wouldn't want to sit next to if you don't know anything about it because they're shouting at people and so forth. But actually, these are people for whom just getting up and going out is a remarkable feat of courage and dignity. And it was so, so enjoyable to watch, you know, the conversation that blossomed around Hellblade and to feel that, you know, at last I was doing something that had a wider impact. Um, you know, I, I was only a small part of it, but just feeling that projects like that, they don't fall under the sort of normal, um, you know, clinical translational science. But actually it was doing a huge amount, more than I've ever, more impact than I'd ever had with the obscure papers that I publish. Yeah. Sorry, I've uh, gone off in a bit no, of a rant. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted, to, I wanted to address that game with you because, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, you know, I, I heard you speak about that game. And then I also just last night watched, you were giving a presentation and providing uh, an example that uh, you actually prefaced the example by telling people in the audience, this may be disturbing. So if you want to cover your eyes, I, I understand. And showed, you played, I think a minute or a minute and a half clip that, conveyed what it might very well be like to be someone who is experiencing extraordinarily critical delusions, auditory delusions. And, you know, that is probably the first time I had seen anything that approached something like my own experience um, that I could point to and say, this may have not been exactly it, but it was much closer to the truth than anything I've seen before. And, you know, I, you said this earlier too, that just reducing the stigma in and of itself is a massive victory. And I will say for my own journey, um, through what I experienced, not feeling less alone, you know, meeting other people who had had experiences like myself, uh, who were open to sharing what they had gone through was extremely helpful. Um, because I, I think when you go through something like that and, you know, there are two awful things that happen. One is the experience itself and then the isolation, yeah. the, the inability yeah. to con, you know, further connect with other people who know you as a you know normal quote unquote person, um, you know, to convey to them what you've just experienced is it's even, it makes it even harder. Um, yeah. So that, that's a long way of me just saying that I, I think that kind, I totally can understand that it's outside of your realm of what you may have been doing for many years, but it's it makes publicly accessible uh, what 
what it what it might be like for people who are going through that. You know, I was thinking before we talked that the only depiction that I had ever seen publicly related to something like this in my childhood was the movie A Beautiful Mind. Um, right. Where where it walked you through John Nash's life. Um, but I don't know that it it conveyed the horror of it in the way that these kind of auditory messaging, right? Like I, I think for most people who see psychotic people who are doing awful things to themselves. I mean, you were telling the story earlier in the conversation about the, the man you met who was charming and intelligent and eloquent and thoughtful, yet was causing massive self-harm uh, right. to himself. And I think it's very difficult for people to understand why would someone do that? And the, that's where the word crazy comes from, is it doesn't make any sense. But things, I think, become a little less crazy when you begin to understand a little better how that might happen to someone, how someone might be driven out of their mind and, and yeah. be, be, um, you know, incur, you know, anyways, that, that, that was, that was my take in, in, in yeah. watching it. And so you can run with that comment, however you would like, but I, I, what was the reaction like from the public as you released that game? And what, what did you see in a reduction of stigma following the release of that kind of material? Uh, well, well, firstly, thank you for, I mean, very very eloquently describing the impact that it had for or the impact that you could see that it had and i think it's thank you um you know it's extraordinary to hear what you said along with what other people have told me about how you know the essence one of the the the, the really unpleasant things about mental distress or mental illness is that it's essentially invisible um it yeah. it, it doesn't have a voice ironically enough um and and so you can't point to anything or even describing it sort of distances the person from it because it's so out there and so you know i i the thing i found initially most powerful was when i could put the headphones on and play the game and just be beset by these auditory hallucinations and by the sort of uncertainty of what was on the screen and the ambiguity and the and and the tale and and also was you know was part of that it's a it's a participatory medium games you know you're not just watching a story unfold you're actually having to participate in it in order that it will unfold mm. if you don't if you're not taking some degree of agency then the screen remains still and nothing happens yeah and I think that was very important. And so getting back to your question about what, what I saw as the public response, um, initially it was just, well, firstly, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm still astonished at the, the talent of the Ninja Theory team, but they said at the outset, they said, look, this, this game is something we've wanted to do a while. Um, we, we don't have a huge amount of resources and we don't think it's going to do well, but we, you know, it might break even. So that would be great. Mm. So there was always a sense that this was a little slightly, um, you know, side project in the, in, in the cupboard. Uh, and actually when it was released, people started to take notice. It started to get some good reviews. And then I started getting quite obsessional about looking in chat rooms and on Twitter and, and and YouTube, of course, where people live stream themselves playing and then following the comments down. And what I was seeing time and again was 
oh, I knew somebody who had this at school and I didn't realize it was like that. And, you know, sometimes someone would say, I feel really bad. You know, we, we didn't, we just used to laugh at this. And, yeah. and, and there was a sort of sense of, of people just saying, okay, when you look at it like this, it's, it's, a, it's a good person trying to, trying to make sense of something. And I think that's very, you know, that, that strikes a chord with people because we're all trying to make sense of stuff. Um, and then there were a lot of uh, testimonials came into the studio and, and to me of people saying, well, I was able to, um, you know, show my brother this game and say, look, this is what it's been like for me. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, when I play this game, I realize what, what my father had been through. And things like that were just, you know, they came in in their hundreds and hundreds, these messages. And so there was a real sense on my part that, um, you know, whatever whatever was going on out there, the game was stirring the water a bit. And, and if nothing else, allowing people to get up and say something about psychosis, even if that was, I'd never realized it could be like this. Subsequently, there have been a couple of studies published uh, in which they've looked at the impact of playing that game on people's attitudes. Yeah. So there is there is a, a data set emerging suggesting it can reduce stigma um, or reduce stigmatized attitudes. But I guess, you know, you need to see that, how that pans out over time. Yeah. You know, I, I used to live in San Francisco and I lived there for seven years and I live in Austin now. And uh, Austin has had, uh, you know, a homeless, homelessness and mental illness problem, um, but not nearly on the scale of San Francisco. And one of the things I'm always struck by when I go back to SF, which I do once or twice a year, is uh, how desensitized you become when you're around that every day and yeah. not being around it every day and then walking in certain uh, areas of San Francisco. I don't know if you know the city well, but there's one neighborhood that is called the Tenderloin, which is ground zero for you know, a failed state within a city. It is, it is utter chaos and insanity. And uh, seeing the uh, distress and the unpredictability and the chaos of the minds of these people who are roaming around the street with nowhere to go. Um, and, you know, it, it is a bit of a paradox because as a resident, it's unsettling, it's unnerving, it's disturbing. Um, it can, it, it, it's just difficult to see on your way into work or while you're trying to enjoy your city. Yet mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, these people are suffering tremendously. And I would be, I'd be interested to get your take on what you think, you know, the ethical perspective should be of an informed citizen about how to you know how to how to think about people who are you know wildly psychotic and are potentially causing chaos in a city but are are just troubled individuals right we've talked a lot about trying to reduce the stigma mm-hmm. um i don't think that necessarily means that you reduce an emphasis on treatment but uh how do you think you were just talking about people who go through these video games and uh, it, it seems like that experience is, may increase their empathy for people who are 
having these horrendous psychological experiences. What do you think is the right way to think about what these people who are often the underclass of our civilization, um, how should we be thinking about them, you know, in an accurate and ethical manner? I mean, that, that's a really tough and important uh, question. I suppose, you know, at the personal level, at the human level, then, we have to continually remember that these are people, yeah. people trying to make sense of just a terrifying, bewildering reality. Um, and that they didn't choose to, you know, live like this or be like this. You know, it's, it's, you have to remember the basic humanity. And I think that's so easy to step back from when you see it in a, in say San Francisco, although, you know, I think you see it all over the place in homeless people, in uh, in prisons. You see people who have profound uh, mental illness or, or difficulties with mental health um, and who've just essentially fallen through the cracks. Um, so I, I think just, you know, if maybe this is slightly mealy mouth, but at least if we can take an attitude and keep that attitude that no matter what, remember, this is a person. Yeah. Uh, not some other life form who who isn't worthy of our respect and who isn't worthy of dignity. But of course, that's you know that's impractical. It's it's important, but ultimately, this you know certainly in the UK, there's a big conversation about mental health and wellness, and it's to some extent been slightly usurped by an industry of wellness and simple advice about maintaining mental health and that's that's great you know great that we're talking about those things um but i think it's become in some instances a substitute for actually engaging with the fact that unless we put money in to um providing support providing both mental and social support and, and assessment and uh and even basic human rights, living conditions, uh, f freedom from exploitation. I mean, I, I, th I think, uh, you know, there's a somehow a trope has got around that we should be in fear of our lives from people who have psychosis when the reality is they're much more vulnerable than they are um, dangerous. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, that can only be dealt with at a societal level. There has to be more money goes into mental health provision hmm. and it's it's pretty rancid here in the uk now the mental health services are so overstretched you can take an adolescent who's presenting with fairly severe signs of psychosis or eating disorder or them and they may not actually get to see a consultant psychiatrist for six or eight months um, and we have to remedy that otherwise we will we will just end up with what you've described so well, you know, this horrible, um, almost a post-apocalyptic situation. Yeah. 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 Um, this is an aside that I, I would, I would be curious to know if you've ever heard of this, but there, this is unique to Austin, the city that I'm living in, where there, there's a man named Alan Graham who started an organization here in town called uh, community first. And I got to interview him a couple of years ago at the facility and he has taken the lowest level 
members of our society who are chronically homeless often have serious mental illness, assuredly have, uh, many of them have had psychotic breaks and created a, an environment in which they can live based on the primary idea that what these people are missing at root is community. Uh, and he's one of the most amazing people I've ever met before because he not only created this facility, but he also lives there. And it's something like three or 400 people in Austin uh, who were formerly chronically homeless, many of whom had mental illness. You know, the day that I interviewed him, you walk around those grounds and you hear random shouts from psychotic people who are residents and clearly having a really hard time. I mean, it's jarring when you don't, when you're not around that every day, but, um, he's a bit of a hero in, in my city currently because of the successes that he has been able to have, um, in, in Austin, in retaining, uh, people who live here. And the day that I interviewed him, you know, this is before COVID there were people from all over the world who were there for seminars, trying to learn, you know, how have you done this? How have you done this successfully? And, you know, it's economically, uh, self-sustaining in some ways there, there, you know, there is some governmental assistance that he gets, you know, one of the things that I hadn't really thought of before meeting him was, you know, prior to being in a home, these people do have access to government resources, but they don't have a mailing address. Yeah. They they don't have a way to collect checks in the first place to take care of themselves. And so that solves part of the problem. You know, he, he had created, um, you know, basic, basic uh, manual labor opportunities for people to do work on the ground so that they had some form of economic viability. Um, and I just put that to you just an aside as a, I wasn't sure if you'd ever heard of that community, but he, he does seem to be potentially on to something that, uh, might be a model that could be replicated for people that, that are really, going through a tough time. And he, he's just somebody I've always thought of related to this extraordinarily difficult problem of being wondering if that model could be replicated in, in other places. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting because when I first started my training in psychiatry, um, there was, it was in the midst of a move that, that had actually begun in the 1970s and eighties to um, move to what they called care in the community. There was yeah. this, um, notion that people had been essentially living their lives in psychiatric institutions. Um, you know, a lot of them had been there since their early 20s and they were now in their 60s. Um, and quite rightly, people were extremely worried about this phenomenon of institutionalization where they, they essentially became reliant upon that, that community yeah. or, or that, that, that hospital. And it was a community, you know, there, there were factories or there was a factory um, within the hospital that I first trained in, uh, just making small, I can't remember what it was making, but it was, you know, a small workshop producing things that were then sold. Hmm. Uh, there were also gardens. There was an attempt to actually treat it as a small village, which sounds a little bit like um, what, what you've just described, except that it was, you know, it, it had the the medical model at its center, the idea that these people were sick and needed to be treated. And then uh, as 
as the, there was this move towards care in the community, what became apparent was that the, um, the government in power at the time saw this as a fantastic opportunity to save money because it must surely be um, cheaper to care for people in the community than mm. it is in hospital. And, you know, sure as night follows day, um, people were just abandoned. People were poured into community settings that they found very distressing, very frightening and bewildering. And, um, you know, they might have a room somewhere, but they were unable to obey the rules of that particular um, residence and might end up quite quickly out on the street. And it was, you know, the, the hospitals were emptied quite rapidly, but there was a real feeling that there was no safety net for a lot of people. And it sounds like what you described actually is something that goes back to that slightly older model, which is asylum in the, in the old sense, asylum meaning safety. Yeah. Um, you know, asylum came to mean horrible institution where people are locked up, but actually initially it was a place where people could be safe from exploitation and safe from the things that, um, that they feared. Of course, you know, along with that, there comes the danger of institutionalization and, um, you know, essentially, uh, completely constraining someone's life and i think that that's something we can't ignore but um it sounds like your description is of asylum as it as it should be i think so you know it's it's a little bit outside of of downtown austin so it is it's it's its own ground its own grounds and the day that i was there they were in the process of building uh something like a hundred new tiny homes. You know, that's with, with 3d, they were 3d printed homes that were being constructed right in front of me. It was pretty amazing. And as they were expanding, if I remember correctly, one of the aspects of the community that they were uh, building was an increased medical facility on the ground so that people could go, you know, for the vast majority of their services directly on the premises itself. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I can send you if you're interested that that interview just so you have it as a reference in case you'd ever like to to learn about. Oh, it. sure, I'd love to hear that. Is it? Have you got it on the the list of um, on your homepage? It's it's a prior. I, I missed it. Yeah, it's a prior interview on a different podcast, and I, I've oh, thought okay. about having him on, trying to get him on again because it's. I think it's it's relevant to many of our social issues that we're facing right now. But I, I can I can send that over uh, over to you and. Um, I know we're, we're getting towards the end of the conversation. And, and one subject that I wanted to talk about with you related to, um, you know, related to psychosis and related to psychological healing and psychological well-being. And I know this is another subject that is very in vogue right now. And I've already done three episodes with uh, various people related to it is the, is the area of psychedelics in our society and the uh, seemingly increasing hope within traditional medical institutions for what certain psych psychedelic substances under the right conditions might be able to provide to people who are psychologically unwell. At the same time, there does seem to be a legitimate risk for people potentially like myself who have you know, a family history of either psychosis or transient psychosis, or certainly schizophrenia, uh, related to, you know, tugging on their reality in any way, uh, and the potential for that to cause 
potential, you know, maybe serious long-term psychological damage to that person. Um, you know, during the course of this podcast, I've interviewed uh, a state congressman in Texas who introduced Bill 1802 last year, which will be the first psychedelic study, psilocybin-based psychedelic uh, trial in Texas for mostly vets who have PTSD, yeah. uh, but will be available to anyone who, who's, who's clinically uh, has, has post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I met with an MDMA therapist who treats people who have uh, experience often a lot of a trauma, sexual trauma and otherwise. And then a, a, a psychiatrist that he was the chief of psychiatry at Harvard, Jerry Rosenbaum, who is now opening up, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, but something like this, the center for the psychedelic understanding of uh, psychedelic effect on the brain, something like that. And it's brand new. It opened, I think last year. And the, the whole idea, I think from his perspective is seeing as a psychiatrist, and I know we're, this is, you know, you guys are, are in this world. If there is a, there there, you know, if there is something that might actually be helpful for people who are psychologically unwell in a clinical environment, uh, to help people who are suffering. And it's a bit of a new field now. It seems like it's reemerging, but I, I would like to just close with getting your thoughts on both the risks and the potential opportunities from your perspective in what seems like a burgeoning new field in our civilization of, of, of potential help and potential risk and how you think about that as somebody who is an expert in psychosis specifically. Um, would love to get your thoughts on that in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think any, any new and emergent field is usually prefaced by the evangelists coming out and, you know, proclaiming the good news. Yeah. And I think there's an awful lot of that uh, around to do with psychedelic therapies. There are people who are, you know, very enthusiastic, very driven, uh, and, and genuinely, sincerely excited about the possibilities. Um, but at the same time, I think some of the claims that I've seen about what it does, how it works, uh, you know, what the implications are for all sorts of different diagnoses. I think those are thought experiments, you know, that there is no good data in a lot of instances. And so we need to, we need to just, you know, be a bit boring and cautious <laughs> about some of the claims. Having said that, you know, I think it would be really remiss if we weren't setting up big studies to try and understand how these things work and to what extent they do work and to what extent their effects are really um you know extended into the long term so that they become genuinely therapeutic tools and every new treatment has to go through that process and that usually there's the period of excitement followed by the period of rational testing then a slight period of disappointment and then people move forward with the things that they now know do work so i'm i'm sort of at the stage where I think, yes, I would, you know, if, if I was starting my research career again, this would certainly be a field I would be excited about entering. So there's an optimistic uh, feel. Uh, at the same time, I think when people invoke things like brain imaging and um, some of the sort of neuroscientific theories to explain how they work, I, I think they're often just waving their hands about uh, and, and really should 
probably rein in their speculations. In in terms of um, you know the dangers, I, I think you've alluded to one, which is what are the actual longer term consequences of regularly taking a drug that we know will alter uh, serotonergic balance in the brain uh, and, and do other things as well. Is it the case that people who have a pre-existing uh, you know, proneness or vulnerability to psychosis, should they be, should they be staying away from that? I, d- I don't think we know. I don't think it follows that they necessarily should. Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we know a fair bit about these compounds from what research that was done in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and so we need to revisit that. We need to be doing very careful experiments, looking at the longer term effects on people. Um, but, you know, I, I would have said that about any drug in any setting that was new. So I, I think we need to stick to our principles that um, that clinical research has developed over many years, which is test it as though you don't believe it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I hope people do that. I mean, I, I think there's always room for evangelists at the start. But at some point, we want to be able to make statements that people can trust. Yeah. Before I ask the last question of the conversation, I I just want to convey uh, an appreciation for the work you do. You know, I've shared some of my own personal background during this conversation and, and uh, it's a bit of a, bit of a life interest and mission of mine as well to mitigate some of the stigma that still exists around, you know, transient psychosis or psychosis in general. And I just have a lot of respect for the way you have handled this, uh, the work you've done even outside your field with uh, the, the video games and and your public lectures that you've given to try to increase uh, awareness. I'm sure this is a subject I will revisit during this podcast because it's it's really of interest to mine. So um, thank you for the work you do and and um, how much energy you put into uh, trying to help both in trying to understand what's going on and also just approaching it with a humane, a humaneness. And, um, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. That, that means a huge amount. I really appreciate that. And, and of course we'll treasure those words. Thank you. To close, I would love, you know, you do some of these interviews I've noticed, but not that many, and you've done plenty of public, uh, of publicly available lectures, but not that many. And I'd love to know, uh, given that this is kind of my opportunity to, to broach this with you, if, if there's anything that you know we haven't covered or uh, areas of knowledge within your field that you think are fascinating or important that are not well known or even questions in interviews like this that you haven't been asked that you wish you would have to be able to kind of address an area of knowledge or inquiry that uh, is of particular interest to you or that you think is really relevant. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm- going to end on a very disappointing note probably <laughs> because i just can't actually think of of i'm i'm sorry to say that nothing actually springs to mind that you haven't talked about or asked about i mean there's there's all sorts of areas of the um the the basic cognitive neuroscience research that i do that i i love to talk about in detail but it's not i don't have any really big picture ideas beyond essentially what we've we've covered um, yeah. i'm sure as soon as we've 
uh, as soon as I've left this podcast, I'll think of about three things and I'll, yeah. I'll be so cross with myself, but. Well, maybe, maybe if I can frame, I can frame one uh, just to get your thoughts on this. And I mean, I think there's j- just for me, uh, I think you're right that having conversations like this go a long way in just, you know, making fe- people feel less alone who might be experiencing a, a, a disturbing phase of their life. And I, I would wonder for you what, uh, what you think are reasonable areas of hope for the patients that, you know, you have treated in your career, right? We, we talked about one earlier, this, the man who ended up harming himself. Um, what do you see, you know, if, if there's another one of him that you come across in 2022, what, how have we developed in a way to try to assist people like that, who, who really, it's not even necessarily a transient psychotic break for them, but it's a way of life. It's their reality. Um, how, how have we improved in certain ways in, in addressing and helping people like him? That's a great question. I suppose, I mean, let, let me do something incredibly uncharacteristic, which is to be optimistic. Uh, (laughs) First, I think, you know, if we take the more standard orthodox approaches i think the medications that have been developed are a big improvement and the way in which they're administered is a big improvement from when i started training Mm. you know i think in my time i've seen lots of people who are horribly over medicated and that's partly arisen because there was a process of treatment that wasn't mutually agreed between the doctor and the patient essentially The patient was there to receive the treatment and the doctor was there to decide which was best. And I think one thing that's changed is that as well as um, the the medications having fewer side effects and being um, more acceptable to patients, not not without exception, I mean, I think they're still unpleasant to take sometimes. Um, There's a much greater emphasis within my field of psychiatry on, um, you know, a a co-produced approach to treatment and recovery in which the the patient is no longer seen as just the recipient, but as actually an active partner in deciding what's best. Hmm. You know, I've seen in my training um, consultant psychiatrists essentially um, scolding people for not wanting to take their medication. Whereas nowadays, I think one sees that much more rarely. There's a genuine recognition in psychiatrists that people need um, need to be on board with it if they're going to take the treatment. So I I think that's a big improvement. It may not sound much, but it actually does make a difference. Another uh, improvement is there's a a growing emphasis on um, bringing different types of treatments together in a pragmatic way so that people have not just a prescription, but they also have the sort of cognitive psychological support uh, that engages with the symptoms and their experiences. So there's a recognition within that, that, okay, you may have hearing voice, you may be hearing voices and maybe those will stay with you, but they don't need to be, uh, they don't need to rule your life. There may be ways of dealing with them where you can learn to live with them. Hmm. And I think that's a big um, plus. And, And finally, I think there's also much more recognition of the importance of social circumstances on in, in how mental illness emerges. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, so nowadays I think that that young man I spoke to would have 
much greater opportunity to talk about um, you know, his attitude to the treatment, what he wanted, um, and, and to receive you know, a much more, I hate the term, but a much more holistic package. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it just seems like, you know, in earlier eras, people like him were treated like lab rats and now they're treated a bit more like a, a bit more like a human. I don't know if that, if you would agree with that assessment, but it just, it, yeah, it I mean, seem... maybe not lab rats in the sense that people, well, maybe in one sense. Yes. I mean, I think they were treated as though the point at which you entered the hospital and assumed the role of patients was the point at which you lost all of your opinions yeah. and simply were there to do the bidding of the doctor. Um, and, you know, there were many exceptions to that in my training, and I saw some wonderful psychiatrists, you know, fully engaged with patients. But I think there was a prevailing attitude that the doctor knows best. I think now there is much more recognition that the person is an agent and they have you know, they have opinions and those opinions really matter. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, Paul, thank you so much for doing this. It was really a, a, a privilege to be able to have this conversation and to share this with you and to get um, all the knowledge that you've shared during the conversation. I, I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It was a huge pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And I, and thank you too for being so open about your own experiences. I think that's really important and very, very um compelling and striking thank you paul i appreciate it my pleasure thanks a lot bye bye thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking if you're finding value in this podcast please consider supporting the show via the links below on venmo paypal or patreon your support helps to make these conversations possible 